Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White and welcome to episode 16 of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. In this podcast, I talk with food entrepreneurs, innovators and startups to get behind the scenes and find out what they're doing to build their business and make their mark in the Australian food industry. And in the aftertaste section... I give you a brief insight, learning, or secret of success that I've gleaned from my guests' experience that just might help you in your own food business or job. Today, I'm talking with Andy Fist, one of the co-founders with Sean Malligan of Cooey Snacks. They produce a range of healthy beef jerky snacks in Tasmania. Now, this isn't like any other jerky you're probably already familiar with. Cooey jerky is made from 100% grass-fed Cape Grim beef. It's free of added sugar, gluten, and anything artificial. The packaging features iconic images of the Tasmanian wilderness, and with its high-protein benefits, Cooey jerky caters for active, healthy people who share the founder's love of the great outdoors. In this episode, you'll hear how when working in New York and jogging through Central Park together, Sean mentioned his closet obsession for beef jerky to Andy and the idea of starting up a beef jerky business. On his return to Australia, Andy embraced the beef jerky revolution and together they bought a sausage factory in Tasmania and turned it into a custom-made beef jerky factory. With early sales starting at local Launceston farmers markets, the unique Cooey jerky quickly gained buyers' attention and is now selling through health food shops, outdoor sporting outlets, delis, IGA, Woolworths, and nationally through Dan Murphy's. Plus, in this episode, you'll learn about the benefits of developing product design guidelines to deliver a consistent product experience that your consumers will love and value. So, welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you very much. Let's start. It's always good to set the scene by letting our listeners know just a little bit about yourself and maybe what you do in the business and tell us a little bit more about Kiwi Snacks and what, what that business is about. Absolutely. Uh, so my name's Andy. I'm a co-founder of Cooey Snacks. I live uh, in Launceston and just outside of Launceston, we have a little beef jerky factory. And so it's my role in the business to, to keep that jerky flowing out of the factory. Uh, our brand is called Cooey. Our marketing department, his name's Sean, he pronounces it as Cooey. And it's a little celebration of the awe and freedom of being in the Australian outdoors, which is something that Sean and I both enjoy. Fantastic. Now, take us back to the moment where, what were you doing before you started this business? And why did you think, you know, getting into beef jerky was, was the right thing to do? Well, that's a question I continue to ask myself. Um, before I was doing this business, in regional Tasmania, I was living in New York City. So I think I'm probably the first person to ever move from New York City to Launceston for a career opportunity. But that is exactly what happened. 
I was out running in Central Park and I was running with a a young accountant from Sydney named Sean. And I knew Sean was looking for a, a new job in New York City. And I was asking him how it was going and he eventually confessed that he was considering starting a beef jerky business and the run almost continued in absolute silence because I, I just felt very sorry for the guy. <laughs> I just immediately jumped to the stigma that many of us hold about beef jerky, which is that beef jerky is a snack that's made pretty much as a waste product from the beef industry. It should live in a car glove box or between the seats of a truck and it's normally branded in a hyper-masculine way and targeted at blue-collar males. So that's sort of the stigma I, I jumped to. And I just thought, oh, well, there's, um, there's no, no business in that. But I was actually working at a sports events company at the time called Tough Mudder. And our event was enabling people to run 21 kilometers through a military-style obstacle course. And this thing had just exploded in the state so i think that year which was 2013 more people did that event in the states and ran a marathon so it become this really big craze in the states and i was aware of this uh, growing movement around paleo and once we got back to sean's apartment after the run he opened up this cupboard and the cupboard was no longer a cupboard it was more like a shrine to beef jerky and he opened it up, this big double cupboard. He spread the doors and there's like dehydrators in there and packaging samples and prototypes from contract manufacturers. I'm like, wow, like this is, this is way beyond a hobby. And he sat there and he pitched the idea to me and the target consumer, which is someone that just wants a healthy high protein snack. And he very quickly convinced me it was a good idea. And that's how it stayed for a while. And then I eventually left Tough Mudder and I was looking for another business to do. Uh, instead, I moved back to Tasmania where I grew up and Sean and I started Kui in Australia. And how long was that period and what was going through your mind? So you're still thinking, yes, I want to start up a business. I've met this guy who had this really in-depth obsession with jerky. Yeah. What were your next steps? So you've, you've moved back to Tasmania now, what are you and Sean then saying to each other about how do you start up a business? Sure. Before I joined Tough Mudder, I thought you had to be some kind of a savant to start a business. And it just took this certain type of character who I'd never met. And once you're actually working inside a startup business, you realize how many mistakes happen. And um, through that experience at Tough Mudder, I thought, well, wow, um, if you can run a successful business while still making mistakes, maybe I should be doing that. So once I left Tough Mudder, I was actually looking to be either the founder of a business or in the first five sort of people in a business because I thought that would be a, a really exciting thing to do. And I was very open-minded about what industry to choose. But I was – this is a funny preference, but I really don't like glamorous businesses. So – I think many people, they'll start a business because they just really, really like the product. So my joke for Launceston is there's a lot of, lot of bike shops because people just love bikes and there's a lot of vineyards because people love wine. There's a lot of cafes because people like coffee. But not many of these people running these businesses are actually thinking analytically, well, is there an opportunity for it? 
so for me, I was uh, thinking in those terms and then meeting Sean, he was more from the product side. So he like absolutely complete jerky evangelist. I am myself these days. <laughs> I wasn't so much back then. But um, when we did finally agree to start the business, that was hard because I'd, I'd never done that before. And not only just start a startup, I never really had any experience in small business at, at all. Like we just had to learn it all from scratch. Uh, we were quite shameless in asking people for help. We continue to do that um, to this day. I think it's important to be humble and recognize where your limits are and never be afraid to ask for help because most of the time people are really, really happy to, to give help. And so that's, that's sort of how it started, asking questions and asking questions. And the point of no return was when we bought a factory in Lagana, which is just outside of Launceston. Yeah, let's talk about this because your accountant turned product developer, Sean, he's still in New York. Yeah. So were you ever tempted to say, well, you sort out the product and I'll, I'll do other parts of the business. Yeah. Why the shift back to a, a factory in Tasmania? Yeah. So in, in the United States, most people make beef jerky using a contract manufacturer. And there's some very different market dynamics over there where that makes a lot of sense to run a beef jerky company in the States. You have to have someone from the regulatory board show up every single day at your own expense just to supervise um, and make sure things are being made safely, which is great. It's important that the product's safe. But the result of that is that given that you've got this fixed cost in your business, you may as well build a massive factory. And anything less than that, you're just not going to get the economies of scale. In Australia, we don't really have a long history of making jerky here, so there aren't many specialised sites that do that. And we are not food manufacturers by trade. We certainly weren't there. I kind of am now. Uh, we sort of ummed and ahed about, you know, well, should we approach a small goods business and ask them to make it for us or should we do it ourselves? That's a really hard question to answer. We eventually decided to, to do it ourselves and you know, make our own mistakes, but also at the end of the day, control the quality of our own product, which was really important to us. We got some help at that point in time from another food entrepreneur in Tasmania, Jane Bennett, who is the founder of Ashgrove Cheese and the current CEO of Taz Foods. And the great thing with Jane was she actually gives you honest feedback, which can be really hard to find um, when you start a business. 95% of people will be standing around slapping you on the back saying, yeah, good on you, mate, have a go. And not many people are actually willing to tell you what they really think or um, even have the, um, the competence to know. So the first time we sat down with Jane, she said, look, if you're going to do it, make sure you do it properly. We were talking about hiring an old supermarket to make jerky or, or an old pie shop or these, these little tiny places where we would have never, ever been able to scale. So she really pushed us towards buying a, a much larger site, which has still got a little bit of spare capacity today. But I think that's going to get chewed up in the next couple of months or so. So you've gone from, we've got an idea, we're starting up, we're splitting forces, I'll be in Tassie, you be in New York, and let's yep. build a factory. Yeah. And let's future-proof it because we're going in hard and we're going to assume this works. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> How did you know this was not going to stay some weird Midwestern American obscure snack? The thinking around jerky today is way different from what it was sort of five, 10 years ago. I mean, it is the, the go-to almost sporty, healthy endurance adventuring snack. 
how did you kind of get to that point where you moved it into that space or you knew that the product would, would perform well in that area? Well, I think there's a certain level of delusion that's really <laughs> important for any founder <laughs> and, and, and like unconquering self-belief. And I haven't always had that. I've had definitely had periods of doubt. That That's for sure. But I think it's very hard to say that we had all the facts out on the table. There was definitely a bit of speculation and risk-taking. But what gave us the most confidence was just witnessing what happened in the United States. And you could say this, I think, for a lot of categories of food, that what happens overseas will eventually happen in Australia. And, and what happened in the United States is that the jerky category, which was already a mature category of food, doubled over the space of about 10 years. And the reason it doubled is because lots of new brands came into the market with new healthier offerings, targeting a new consumer. And we thought, well, there's there's no reason why that wouldn't happen in Australia. The same trends exist. There's the trend towards snacking. And high protein just seems to be a trend that won't go away. It seems that carbs and fat come in and out of fashion every five or 10 years. But I've never, ever heard anyone say something nasty about protein. It's a general shift in the population towards high protein food. So we saw all of those and we thought, well, we can't be certain about anything, but it definitely seems like this same thing will happen in Australia. And then we've got an added benefit in Australia that you can't import beef products. So it's quite a protected market. So it looked good on paper. <laughs> so we, we charged ahead. Yeah, and I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there. You <laughs> saw a firm trend happening and you said, yeah, I can see that that's going to happen. You know, we're going to see that come through in Australia and it feels like you got on at just the right time. L- let's talk about who is buying the Kiwi snacks because I see the positioning and some of the words on your website and packaging. You talk about all natural snacks and healthy. Tell me a little bit about who this is for. Well, we, we set out to make the healthiest product we could and make something without compromise. We were really passionate about using grass-fed, ethically raised meat. And the kind of people that that appeals to are ones that are, are health conscious and have slightly deeper pockets to, to spend for something like this. And don't get me wrong, I think there's still a huge space for all these traditional jerkies in Australia, but they're typically really high in sugar which will put people off. They have a lot of numbers in their ingredients list, which isn't for everyone. And they're branded in a way that will really only appeal to men. So I think there was a lot of people out there that wanted to eat beef jerky, but it just didn't feel like a permissible consumption decision for them for the health reasons and also because of the way it was branded. So we wanted to make something really healthy. We wanted to, to make something that we would have like nothing to hide. Like we, we never want to be in a position where someone calls up our factory and asks us a question and we're ashamed. We're ashamed to tell them like, where does the meat come from? Why are you using this ingredient? How does that work? Like we never, ever wanted to be in that position. So we've made it without compromise. Um, we've made it a single serve bag. So it's a 100 calorie serve. So there's some portion control um, within the product. But I think the real innovation, at least by Australian standards, is in the branding. And the acid test I used to use when thinking about the brand was how would a female lawyer feel when she eats this at her desk at work that she bought at the local convenience store and it's got maroon branding and bulls on the front and she opens the bag and the whole room smells 
that's probably not something most people would be comfortable. So when we thought about the brand, it's got to be something that you can defend in that situation. Like the leading jerkies in Australia, the taglines for their brand is uh, because everyone's a legend and um, feed your wild side. Now, they are not messages that are going to resonate with um, an affluent, health-orientated professional living in a capital city. So with Kui, we set out to create this outdoorsy brand. We used, on all our packaging, it's uh, inspired by places that I really love in Tasmania. So it's all very personal to me. And of course, it you know, creates this platform where we can tell all these stories about these great locations. But in doing so, it, it was completely gender neutral in its appeal. And because there just hasn't been that much innovation in beef jerky in Australia, we're also bringing out some really interesting flavours as well. So even people that are after a gourmet experience can get something out of Kui. Thank you for that description. That really clearly was about how you had to set out to break a stereotype about who and what beef jerky was. And it feels like a really good link to you and Sean. You know, your background is through events and things like that. So Kui is a very personal thing for Sean because he used to, to let out a Kui at the top of every mountain that he would reach in these climbs. So it's, it's a, a nice little tie-in. And when he came up with it, I really, um, and I should mention um, our branding team as well, Jamie and Pika helped out a lot with this, but I really think he nailed it. And not only something that means something to us, but something that's universal and people understand that being outdoors is relaxing and there's something that we associate with health. Let's talk about the actual flavours because you, you touched on it then as well in terms of, so not only the packaging definitely breaks the stereotype, it's modern, it's contemporary, it's very active, it's very, you know, sort of gender neutral. But as soon as you look at the sort of the variants you're offering and the flavours, they are quite gourmet. They are very delicious sounding. I, I'm looking at classic sea salts and mountain pepperberry and habanero chili and all sort of sourced from local ingredients. How did you land at those flavour combinations? Well, traditionally, beef jerky has been sold in only a handful of flavours. And we, we say there's this holy trinity of beef jerky flavours. There is the original flavour, there is the teriyaki flavour, and there's the chilli flavour. And so all brands seem to have those three flavours. And for us, there was nothing particularly healthy about those brands, or at least in the way they were positioned. So we just looked at it and said, okay, well, instead of having an original flavour, Let's have a classic sea salt. It's still going to be a minimally seasoned product, but we don't have to follow the crowd in how we name these things. Likewise, with the teriyaki, for us, that didn't fit at all because it's not something people will ever associate with health. And for many people, they'll associate it with sugar. So actually, when we launched the product, we launched with a ginger sesame, which was our um, healthy take on teriyaki. And then with the chili, that's just a bit boring. We don't want to bring out another chili. So we looked far and wide to work out uh, what chilies we thought could do well. And we brought out a Chipotle, which was sort of right at the right time, right before Chipotle sort of it was becoming a thing in Australia. And then Habanero came along later. And with Habanero, we're like, okay, there's a lot of people that just uh, they want a hotter chili. They want a bit of a challenge. Um, so we just started taking things down to the Launceston Farmer's Market and saying, what do you prefer, A or B? 
It's time for a quick break now. When we come back, you'll hear how Andy decided which new products to make based on consumer feedback and how he and Sean built up distribution of Cooey snacks beyond Tasmania. I'd just like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible. It's Bedalia. They're a global food and beverage venture catalyst with decades of FMCG experience. They can help commercialize and accelerate your idea globally and shorten the time to profitability. Did you know that only one in 20 companies survive when trying to upscale and expand their business? That's why this business stage is often called the death zone. To avoid this, Bedalia works with entrepreneurial businesses at precisely the time when support is needed the most, when scaling up nationally or globally. They surround you with specialists and skills that complement your own, like strategic business planning, design and branding, supply strategy, and they can also support in operations, procurement, new product development, quality control, marketing, sales and distribution, and even social media, all tailored to your specific business needs. You can check them out at www.badalia.com. That's B-A-D-A-L-Y-A. And put them to work building your business. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Andy Fist from Cooey Snacks. And you've heard so far how he embraced Sean's challenge to create a healthy jerky snack that would shake up the beef jerky market. And so I asked Andy how he gathered feedback on his new flavor ideas. We always do this in a two-stage process. So what is your reaction to the name of the flavor? So I say, would you buy habanero chili? And as far as the consumer knows at this stage, that this it's not even available to try today. I'm just like surveying them. And they'll say yes or no or get the reaction to habanero. So often with habanero, it was, well, I don't know what a habanero is. But there's something about that word that sounds really hot. And especially with chili, I know that habanero chili sounds like a hot chili. And it sounds exotic. I'm like, great, that's ticking all the boxes. Love it. And then you let them try the flavor. So um, both those things are important. Because if you have the most wonderful flavor um, that you've spent years developing and then you name it the wrong thing, that's probably going to bomb because no one's going to pick it up for the first time and actually take it home. So that's the process. And we'll just make things in plain packaging, take them to the market and work out what sells and what doesn't. Another nice example was kimchi. I got my hands on this kimchi powder and I loved it. And the flavor tasted amazing. And I'm a big fan of Korean food. I was like, oh, this is, this is going to kill. This is going to be fantastic. Took it down to the market and started surveying people and people just couldn't get their heads around it. I'm like, would you buy a kimchi beef jerky? And probably half the people said, oh, I don't know what kimchi is. So no, I wouldn't. And then the people that did know what kimchi was, half of them were like, wow, it's not really a flavor I would associate with meat. So. If I was going to buy it, um, it'd just be out of curiosity, which for me I, I heard as they're not going to buy it. We just could 
end that product right there based on those reactions. Which is hard for me because I really liked it. But it's like, all right, the people have spoken. Andy, it's going to be okay. Walk away. And let's talk about your packaging. How did you land on what format to put this in? And I also noticed yours has quite a unique side tear where the whole pack opens from the side. Yeah, you have to be quite motivated to get into our bag for the first time. Because <laughs> as you say, like when you're looking at the bag, the tear is down the right-hand side. So there's not many food products at all that open in that orientation. One uh, negative experience from eating beef jerky, this is really only applies to traditional products that have a lot of moisture and a lot of sugar, is that you stick your hand into the narrow opening at the top of the bag and your hand becomes quite sticky, and especially if you've, you've got larger hands. So we thought, well, there's a simple solution to that. Why don't you put the opening along the longest side of the bag? And then we started colouring that tear as well, and it really started adding to this visual identity of the brand. They really pop on the shelf because you've got this bright coloured tear strip down the right-hand side. So we eventually worked out that it's quite expensive, but looked great. <laughs> and and the whole principle was let's make it without compromise. Let's make the best product we can. So. And I'm so relieved, as you said, it's actually based on true usage experience. It definitely stands out. Yeah, and, and from time to time, people in the industry will say, oh, well, you know, it's a bit confusing for the first-time user and it um, means your utilisation on the shelf isn't the same because it takes up more horizontal space and the palette utilisation and so forth. And we're like, yeah, 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 but you do agree it's cool, right? It is like part of the soul of the product now. Like I, I'm not in a hurry to just... To just walk away from my side tear. Like, we're very proud of our side tear. So I, I think, um, yeah, we would have to come up against something overwhelming to get rid of it. We really like it. And it, it, it's a clear point of difference in the packaging against every other jerky product in the world. I'm thrilled about that. It's a unique point of difference. Now, let's go back to your production days. You get a building. Yep. Did you buy it or did you lease it? And who's helping you actually set up the machinery to make beef jerky? Well, I, I've got a, a small team of people that's led by Dean. My co-founder, Sean, and I say that every small food business needs a Dean, not our Dean. Don't call our Dean. He's got a job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think he's very satisfied here. So not our Dean, but everyone needs their own Dean um, to keep things running. So he's our production manager, and he can just run this factory by himself. With the actual setup of the building, we did buy it. Uh, it was actually a brand new sausage factory. We, of course, did not have any interest in buying it at the time because we had zero money. But we went back and forth with the bank and with the person selling it and we worked out an agreement that would work for everyone. So we, we bought the factory. So I've, I've never owned a piece of real estate in my life apart from a sausage factory in regional Tasmania. So sometimes I still wake up you just think, what happened? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> how, do I, how do I own a beef jerky company in a sausage factory? And it's a great little space. Of course, being brand new, we walk through, it's like, well, we would feel no shame in giving Coles and Woolworths a, a tour through here. So, yeah, we think it made a lot of sense despite it being a big risk. We're, uh, we're currently giving some friends a tour around the factory. I can see it in the background here. They're about to go into a room where there's this giant machine that cuts the finished jerky. Now, when we started, that machine was kitchen scissors, and that was it. And we used to sit there at night cutting jerky up with kitchen scissors and destroying our hands, 
poor Dean's hands. <laughs> like it would have been a good time to hire Dean back then because <laughs> it was a pretty brutal work environment. But over time, the kitchen shears got upgraded. Then there were two sets of kitchen shears and then eventually a giant machine just to, to automate it. And you can say the same with all the equipment in here and also just the processes. So you and Dean are using scissors to cut jerky. Where did you first sell it? How did you even find your first customer? Well, we took it down to the Launceston Farmers Market on that first day. And we'd been working late nights to try to get our second flavour ready. And we just weren't happy with it and been really stressful, putting a lot of things in the bin. But we showed up to the Launceston Farmers Market. It wasn't even three years ago. It feels like a lifetime ago to me. And Dean was there. We had another volunteer friend, Sam, who'd been helping us out. My girlfriend, Susie, was there. And the first person came up and they tried it and they bought some. But after that, the rest of them turned to me and they're like, Andy, you've just got to leave. You're just stressing us out. I was just so anxious and so nervous and just not ready for people's judgment because I'd invested so much time and money into this. It needed to go well and I just couldn't bear the idea of someone criticizing it or not buying it and I was sleep deprived so I just went and I slept in the park for a few hours and let all my friends sell beef jerky on that first day we made $450 that first weekend at the market the next weekend we made $900 we're like wow we're going to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> this is the big time. Yeah, I don't think we've ever exceeded 900 <laughs> at the Launceston market. So it was a bit of a, so it was just good luck. But um, from there, we, um, people from the local vineyards were passing through. So our first retailer was actually Morse Hill Vineyard in the Tamer Valley, which is just down the road from us. And then there was this fantastic independent store in Launceston called Davies Grand Central. And that's been one of our best stores in Launceston ever since. But the first year or even 18 months was pretty brutal. And I was working farmers markets every Saturday and sometimes I'd drive down to Hobart on the Sunday and sell it there as well. We we're in a few independent stores in Tasmania and and the big break came with a one-line email from someone at Dan Murphy's. And they said, found your product interested in samples, can you please send? We're like, wow, is this, is this a joke? <laughs> that was when the Launceston Dan Murphy's opened, and this is the first Dan Murphy's in Tasmania, and they had been looking around at local liquor, local wine. Somehow they'd stumbled across our product, and they were interested in putting it in Dan Murphy's. And we're like, oh, wow, that's great. One Dan Murphy store, this is a big opportunity. And so Dean went into Dan Murphy's on that first Saturday opening and it was absolute pandemonium. And he was in there for seven hours just sampling our product. And I think on that first day, we sold 26 packets and we heard from Dan Murphy's head office that they got the sales list of the most popular products from that first day of sales. And it went something like Corona, VB, Bogues, Cooey. And we were like, what is Cooey? What is that? Feel like, oh, it's a beef jerky. I'm like, someone sold 26 bags of beef jerky in a day. That's, that's insane. But it got people's attention. And then it just continued to sell well. Um, so only a couple of months later, they called me up and they said, Oh, Andy, just wanted to check. Like, if you, we were to give you some more stores, would you be able to handle the increased production? And I was like, Yeah, yeah, of course. And I was thinking, Yeah, they might add a 50 more stores if they're going to try it 
up there on the North Island and see how it goes. But we got this order through. We want to get all your flavours for all the Dan Murphy stores. Your lead time here says 10 days. That's a really long time. Can we get it in five? I'm like, how many bags of beef jerky do you want? Oh, we want 13,000. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, uh, I was like oh, well, I'm going to need the 10 days. I feel sorry for Dean already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were just working around the clock. The pinnacle of it was when one of my staff members brought a mattress that ended up on the, the floor of my office so I could keep the ovens running through the night so we could make this, this order. But it was all hands on deck. And I think the pallets got picked up in early February. And then by the end of February, we had already exceeded the revenue of the previous calendar year. <laughs> like, oh, here we go. <laughs> so we really got out of the gates quickly with the support of Dan Murphy's. And of course, that got the attention of Woolworths. And um, I think then later that year, we brought out the four flavors that we currently have in store. And it seems that since then, we have rarely had a bad conversation with a store. What have you had to do in terms of promoting it for, for consumers? How are they, you know, learning about it or finding about it? I saw you do a, some event sponsorship. Is, is that your main way to communicate the product? Yeah, it's an ongoing battle. You send your beef jerky, say, to Woolworths, and then you think, now everyone will know it's there and shop the jerky aisle for the first time in their lives. And, of course, that's just ridiculous. You've got to actually go out and tell people, this is where you find it. And, yeah, you're right, event sponsorships are a really good one for us. Like, we want a bag of jerky in every race registration pack for some outdoorsy events within our geographies where we sell. So, um, at the moment, that's Tasmania and Victoria. And slowly over time, we hope it just enters the collective consciousness that jerky can be a healthy food. Um, they will associate it with that event um, and they'll also know where to find it. So that's been very cost effective. Yeah. And I've I noticed too, quite bravely on your website, you allow consumer reviews. I, I mean, you've obviously got a lot of confidence in the product to let people <laughs> comment on your website. Yeah, well, it, it, they've got to be certified buyers of the product. So it's really important that we have that feedback loop. We really appreciate it when people write to us with kind feedback, but we also appreciate it when people write and they weren't completely satisfied. And we prefer to look back at our product from 12 months ago and be a little bit embarrassed by it. Because if you look at your product from 12 months ago and you're not a bit embarrassed by it, it's because it hasn't improved since then. So we want to continually improve the product. And no one really hates our product more than I do. Like I hate it more than everyone. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always trying to work out how to make it a little bit better. But it just, it just, um, it's just the social proof of it as well. Like if the comments are there, it's just like, well, are these guys legit? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. so it, it makes it real. Um, so, yeah, my business partner, Sean, was a big advocate for that, um, and it's been a, a huge success. So hats off to Sean for that one. And I'm glad we're back to Sean and spoke about him. So this has all been happening in Australia, and now it's up and running. You've got some fantastic distribution points. What's Sean doing in, in America and New York? Is he doing the parallel path of this? 
So Sean is not doing much in New York at all, and I'm not saying that to be mean. He uh, he now lives in Sydney. Oh, okay. It was the return of Sean, and I should have mentioned that when I was talking about the quick expansion of the sales because that was all down to Sean. Sean manages all our sales now, and he definitely gets involved elsewhere, but the sales are his focus, and it, it works really well because sales is just an emotionally draining thing to do, to constantly pick up the phone with a very real chance of rejection, very hard. And if you give someone two responsibilities, sales and something else, so say sales and bookkeeping, trust me, you will have the most immaculate books because if you get a choice between sales and anything, you're going to do the other thing. So Sean is focused on sales and he's the perfect person to do it because he's just so passionate about the product. And like, I love making the product and I take a lot of pride in Kui, but at the end of the day, like it's his baby, it's his it's his hobby that has spiraled wildly out of control. And, um, you know, he's the soul of the business. So he's the right person to be on that front line. And so, yeah, that, that's what he's doing. He's in, he's in Sydney selling jerky. How do you find it working with a business partner in Sydney versus Tasmania? Is, is that just business as usual? Oh, well, of course, I'm always reluctant to trust anyone from the North Island. So you always <laughs> tread carefully there and you want to do business with Tasmanians. As a first preference, of course, but um, yeah, I, I think the distance is hard and things would be much easier if we were in a, a shared office. There are benefits to being in Sydney. You know, you're just down the road from Woolworths and you can go and have a meeting with them if you want. But where we've done really well and perhaps the biggest reason for Kui's success to date is just how well all of the founders have continued to work together under very stressful circumstances at times. Like we've gone through some rough patches and perhaps today I've given you a list of greatest hit success stories. We're really lucky because we started this company barely knowing each other. Um, we've also got graphic designers that have equity in the business because that's the only way we could compensate them at the time. And they turned out to be remarkable people. And not only are my business partners, but now are, are close personal friends of mine. And I really trust these guys. And that's why the business has been so successful. It leads me beautifully into, is this now the dream job? <laughs> it sounds like, you know, you get to go to these amazing outdoor sporting events, represent <laughs> Australian quality brand. Is it the dream job? Yeah, like there's a lot of things I love about this job. The financial stress is something I could do without, but absolutely long term, I see myself staying in the food industry. I really love working in food. I think it's such an easy thing to talk to other people about. And I love like the, the human psychology of just buying things and just the commerce and the trade. It, it's a wonderful industry. And I'm really proud to have started a little company. We take a lot of pride in the jobs we created as well and um, just spending time with these great people. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to say about how satisfying it's been. I wouldn't want people to think that it's not stressful um, starting a, a business because it really is. The grass is always greener as well. I still talk to my mates in corporate and they've got some semblance of financial stability. I'm like, oh, that would be nice. <laughs> It'd be nice to own some real estate that's not a sausage factory. And then, of course, they're looking at me and they're like, oh, that would be nice to actually do something you're passionate about. And so where do you see Kui going? How how big or how far do you want this to go? So world domination, I suppose, is uh, on the agenda for Kui. We'd be happy, I think, to, to see our product on more shelves in Tasmania, for starters. 
But yeah, we're trying to grow as quickly as we possibly can. We think there's a big opportunity in beef jerky and meat snacks more broadly in Australia. But of course, there's a lot of interest from overseas as well. And if we could get ourselves to the scale and to the competence where we can reliably be exporting products, I would be very proud to be doing that. Um, at the moment, we're only selling in Australia. Uh, we've got some export restrictions on us, but um, that's the dream to um, keep growing in Australia. And then when we're ready, look at the overseas opportunity. Thanks so much today, Andy, for sharing your story. It's been amazing. I love the honesty and, um, you know, that, that we get a real insight into your business and the startup journey. So thank you for that. And we wish you every luck in the future going forward. And I can't wait to see you on even more shelves. Well, thank you very much, Susie. It's been fun. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Andy Fist from Cooey Snacks and reflect on an insight from his food entrepreneur journey. And I have to say right off the bat, Andy has the skill of a natural-born storyteller. The way he shares his story is just so authentic and honest and with such a great sense of humour, it was really hard not to spend the whole interview just laughing along with him. But back to business. There's so much good stuff going on with Cooey Snacks that I could talk about now, like how to run a business that aligns with a personal passion, such as a love of the great outdoors. Or what about how to tap into product manufacturing in a beautiful region like Tasmania that builds your product quality and a credible provenance story? Or how about we dive into how to revolutionize and contemporize an outdated and niche category like beef jerky by tapping into a modern health trend? Because Cooey Snacks are doing all of these things brilliantly, as you would have heard in this interview. So today, I'm going to talk instead about Andy's persistence in the quality of his product offer. In his own words, he said repeatedly, we made it without compromise. And this was really evident in his choice of using a single-serve pack with that brightly coloured, wider, resealable side opening. Now, so many people told him that that packaging choice was an unnecessary extra expense because others in the market weren't doing it and it was an inefficient use of shelf dimensions and pallet space. And all of that is absolutely true. However, Andy's insistence on this seemingly minor detail speaks volumes for his and Sean's commitment to delivering a high-quality and unique product experience. The reason for the wide side opening was to improve on the difficult-to-open sticky hand experience that was created by existing jerky products. And so what Andy has been very mindful of creating is what I call product design guidelines. So what do I mean by that? Well, product design guidelines help define what your product is and how it should be presented. They help you consistently provide a product consumption experience that your consumers will love and value. Now, product design guidelines capture the important sensory attributes that you'd like your product and packaging to consistently offer so that it can deliver to the promised product benefits. Um, for example, 
They describe the taste, flavor, aroma, texture, size, pack design, and pack functionality of a product. Now, there are two different types of product design guidelines. The first are deal breakers, and the second are delighters. Deal breakers, just as they sound, are the must-have features of your product to compete in your product category. They're basic entry-level requirements, and without them, consumers wouldn't even consider your product. Meanwhile, delighters, by comparison, are features that, while they're not strictly necessary, they can be really powerful in differentiating your product from your competitors and providing a wow factor that delights consumers beyond their expectations. So how do you capture what your product deal breakers and delighters are as product design guidelines? Well, it's really simple. Just create a table on an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document with the following headings. Flavor, taste, texture, size, aroma, appearance, pack design, and pack function. And then under each of these headings, write down all the attributes of your current product. Now, if you're not sure whether an attribute is a deal breaker or a delighter, the secret here is just to ask your consumer. So, for example, Andy found out quickly that they needed a salty, teriyaki-style and chili flavor combination in their beef jerky range. Those were the deal breakers. But by asking people at his local farmer's market, he found that some people really liked a more gourmet-sounding, unfamiliar flavor, provided it had taste cues, like habanero chili. Whereas when Andy chose something unfamiliar, without any clear taste cues, like kimchi, people were confused and unlikely to try it. So a flavor delighter for Kiwi snacks becomes unique gourmet flavors with a clear taste cue, like classic sea salt or smoked chipotle. Knowing this, Andy can now develop new flavors that deliver against these product design guidelines to make sure that his flavors are true delighters for his consumers. Let's try another one together. Under the product design guideline heading of pack function, uh, Kiwi Snacks could capture this as a deal breaker. They're single serve 100 calorie packs that they use. These support consumers' desires for healthy snacking and portability because it makes these snacks easy to grab and eat on the go, especially at outdoor events. For that reason, it's a deal breaker because without it, consumers' needs simply wouldn't be met. Now, also under pack function, I would include features like the resealable side opening of the Kui packs as a delighter. It means that with this feature, consumers don't have to eat all the jerky at once. It's easy to open and they can eat it cleanly. Now, this is a delighter because it surpasses any of the competitors' eating experiences and it's become a true distinctive visual design feature of the Kui packs. And the true test for a delighter is a really simple question. Could you live without it? Sure. Would you want to? No. So what does this all mean for you? Well, if you make food or beverage products in your business, 
it's helpful to stop and capture your product design guidelines. That is, what product features do you consistently want your products to have that's essential for a satisfying consumer experience? Now, you probably know these and have these already in your head, but the value of writing these down is when other people, apart from yourself, start being responsible for new product development. They can then easily understand what taste, flavor, aroma, size, and packaging elements are critical to deliver a quality product. Now, product design guidelines can also be helpful if you're outsourcing your product manufacturing. These can then serve as product quality specifications and standards that a co-manufacturer can deliver against. And finally, when times are really tough and the pressure comes to lower your cost of goods, with product design guidelines, you can clearly understand the impact of changing a product attribute and how to do this without stripping out its core deal-breaking value. And to end, just a note of caution. There's a reason why these are called product design guidelines and not product design rules. These are not there to be strictly adhered to with blind obedience. These are flexible guidelines that need to stay relevant and meaningful as your category and consumers change. What was once a delighter may soon become a deal breaker as your competitors improve their offers or consumer needs and expectations shift. So keep on checking your guidelines and update and amend these as needed. This is a great time to follow Andy's advice. He said, we want to continually improve our product. I'm always trying to make it a little bit better. Well, that's it for episode 16. I'd like to thank my guest today, Andy Fist of Cooey Snacks, for sharing his inspiring business story with us and for keeping me laughing throughout the interview. If you'd like to learn more about Cooey Snacks and connect with Andy as one food entrepreneur to another, I'll include all the business social media links in the episode 16 show notes. Thank you again for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with a fellow food startup or entrepreneur. And don't forget to join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 